Good morning, everyone. Are we on? I couldn't tell because nobody was doing anything. They were just talking like they were before, so I couldn't really tell that the microphone was on. Let's go ahead and take our seats. Happy that you are enjoying the fellowship. There will be time for fellowship after the service. The rest of our lives, in fact. Well, today we begin a new series on God's agenda, your growth. And this morning we'll be in John chapter 15. For this series, which is three weeks long, we're going to drop into three different texts from three different books of the Bible. And the first one uh, will be out of the Gospel of John. So let's listen now to hear it read. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this series is on spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is one of our four core values. You can see the the four panels in the lobby out there. You've got sound doctrine, spirit-filled relationships, and then the fourth panel is spiritual growth. And so every fall, our intent is to take one of those core values or one of the three loves in terms of our vision statement, love God, love one another, love your neighbor, take one one aspect of of that, uh, of who we are as a church, and to preach on it, to spend some time thinking about it, and to just remember who we are and what God has called us to. And so this year, it's spiritual growth. Now, core values uh, can be very arbitrarily chosen. And so we did the best we could to, to not do that. So a couple years ago when we were thinking through the core values of the church in, in an attempt to just kind of re, uh, redefine, and I, that's when we changed our name, rebrand and uh, redo a lot of things actually, we spent a lot of hours just thinking through, you know, what are those things that are distinct about what God has been doing in this church for those, these 30 years? What is it that if you, if you bump into the people or the ministries of the church, tends to jump out? tends to, to mark that, that encounter. And so we felt like spiritual growth was one of those things. That is, it's been a, it's been a passion, it's been at the central uh, core of what we hope happens in all the, the gatherings and meetings and ministries of the church. And so if it doesn't happen, we 
we think there's, there's something that's not, not right, something that needs to be fixed about this. So spiritual growth is a big deal. And we look at the Bible and we recognize that uh, it's definitely not arbitrarily chosen. You look at the Bible and you read a passage like John 15 and you realize God wants me to grow. That's his vision for me. That's his agenda for me is that I grow as a Christian. And so that's where this, this notion of spiritual growth as a core value came from. And the thing with uh, spiritual growth, which is really critical, is when we think of spiritual growth, we're thinking in very broad terms. So if you as a Christian grow, go from an immature believer to a mature believer, that doesn't just affect you. That affects everyone in your sphere of relationships. In fact, it will very likely compel you, motivate you, inspire you to create a whole new set of relationships you don't have now. You'll be compelled perhaps even to travel around the world for the sake of the gospel because you have a new vision, a new desire, a new, a new goal in life that you didn't have before. And so spiritual growth in our thinking, and this is, again, this is what we see in the, in the word of God, spiritual growth is a, it's a thing that starts internal. If it's not internal, it's not real. It has to be internal. But if it's true spiritual growth, it won't stay inside. It will go external, and it will affect others. And so as we think about spiritual growth, we're thinking of it in, in those broad terms that everyone you touch will be affected if you are a growing Christian. It will change your marriage. It will change your parenting. It will change your parents, perhaps. It will change your work relationships, your neighbors, your neighborhood, your extended family. People will be affected by your spiritual growth or its lack, right? People will be affected. Now, our passage is John 15, so we're, dro- we're just dropping in the middle of, of the gospel of John, so we want to get a little bit oriented quickly. This is not a series in John, just a, just a sermon out of John. So this is from John 13 to 17. That's, the, that's the, the larger section. So this is the upper room discourse it's sometimes called because it took, it's a discourse, it's a, it's a conversation, a teaching Jesus gave, and it took place in the upper room. So no real creativity there, but that's why it's called that. So in John 13 and 17 is getting toward the end of John. In fact, this whole discussion took place on the Thursday night and then early Friday morning before the crucifixion of Jesus. So in just a few hours, uh, in, as, as these events were originally happening, in just a few hours, Jesus would be crucified. So these are the last words Jesus gave to his disciples. And so this is when the Last Supper would have taken place, and as we read about in the synoptics. So John doesn't record that, but this is the same, this is the same event. And it's, it's useful to remember that, that, that of all the things Jesus could have addressed in, those, in that last remaining opportunity, he picked this, this notion of, of him as the vine and the Father as the vine dresser and us as the branches. He saw fit that this would be one of those first-tier teachings that he would leave his disciples with. And so we want to hear it that way. We want to hear it as the last words of Jesus. In other words, really, really, really important, right? So we want to hear it in that light. So three things we're going to pull from this text. These have to do with spiritual growth. So first, growth begins with God. Growth begins with God. Number two, growth requires work. And then number three, growth brings great blessing. So growth begins with God, growth requires work, and then growth brings great blessings. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for another opportunity to, to gather as your people in your name, <clears throat> to sing praises to you, to lift prayers to you, to engage in true Christian fellowship, to bless others uh, with the gifts you've given to us, and to be blessed uh, by others, by the gifts you've given to them. And so we pray that that would happen to everyone who came in the doors uh, of this church this morning. We pray it would happen to everyone who's watching online, that they would be blessed by the ministry that happens today. And Father, as we contemplate this aspect of spiritual growth, we pray that you would just, just a birth in each one of us in a unique way, a, a desire to grow, to see this next year as an opportunity for growth and to have uh, specific goals for our growth as Christians. And as with all goals that are actually going to get accomplished, we pray that they would be reasonable ones and that they would be achievable ones. We know it's only a year, and yet it is a year, Lord. You can do a lot of things in the course of a year in our lives if we're serious about growing. And so we just pray that you would, you would just take this, this broad idea of spiritual growth and you would make it personal, specific for each one of us. How is it that you want us individually to grow, to grow strong? Is it an area of of doctrine we need to understand? Is it an area of practice we need to add? Is it an area of obedience we need to uh, begin doing? Whatever it is, Lord, make it specific and personal for each one of us. Help us to grow, Lord. Let us be a, a church of growing Christians, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point one. Growth begins with God. So Jesus starts off with one of the great uh, single sentences in uh, the Gospel of John. So, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And anytime there's an I am, Jesus is speaking in the Gospel of John, you kind of have to hear uh, Exodus 3 ringing in, the, in your ears, where God identified himself to Moses as I am who I am. So even though the sentence continues after that, it doesn't just stop with I am in this, in this case. You need to hear aspects, just reverberations of Exodus 3, because I, I do think they're there. There's a couple times where actually he does stop with just saying, I am. And then you, you know exactly who he's identifying himself to be. But in this case, he is God, he's Yahweh, I am, but who is the true vine as well, and the vine dresser. Now this notion of, of Jesus as vine, you can't really get unless you, we, you, de- you tap into the Old Testament. We'll do this quickly, we won't go into all the, the vine passages in the Old Testament, there's many of them, and they they have a lot to say to us, but just a couple kind of representative uh, verses from the Old Testament. This is from Jeremiah and then Isaiah. Jeremiah says, yet I planted you, and of course he's, he's, uh, he's prophesying, so this is the Lord speaking to his people. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? You know, wild vine producing wild grapes, not choice grapes, but wild grapes. So, So in this case, uh, God is telling his people, Israel, I planted you as a vine. I planted you to be a fruitful vine producing choice grapes, but instead you turned degenerate and you became a wild vine. And then Isaiah 5. So Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is, is one of the great vine or vineyard texts. And at the end of that passage, he says this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. You know, in case there's any question, he makes it really clear. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, 
but behold, an outcry. So Jeremiah uses the word degenerate. Isaiah uses, uses uh, uh, this notion that no, there was no justice and there was no righteousness in the nation of Israel. The vine was planted to be just and righteous and choice, and instead it rebelled, turned from the Lord. In other words, it was not the true vine. It was an unfaithful vine, an unfruitful vine. That's what Israel was. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I am the true vine. What he's saying is, I'm the new Israel. I'm, I'm the, the son or the vine that didn't become degenerate, that didn't become unjust, that didn't become unrighteous, but I stayed true to the father. Because in both cases, the father is the vine dresser, isn't he? He's the one who planted So Jesus is saying, I am the true vine, the genuine vine, the fruitful vine. And then in both cases, the father is the vine dresser. So Jesus looks into heaven, he sees his own father, and he knows that that father is the the vine dresser doing his work. But the image doesn't stop there. It would say a lot if it it did stop there, but it didn't. It went on and it it brought in this notion of branches. And so we know that we are branches. We have a place in this allegory, this metaphor that Jesus is presenting to us. And in some ways, you don't want to miss the significance of that. So if if you have a vine that has branches, the grapes are on the branches, right? The grapes aren't directly on the vine. The grapes are in in the offshoots of the vine. The branches. So if the branches aren't bearing fruit, then the vine is not bearing fruit, right? Well, we are the branches in this situation, not, not Jesus. He's the, he's the main stock, the main vine. So and the, we are his offshoots. Now, he will be a fruitful vine. It's not like the fruitfulness is in question here. But it's just helpful to remember that the reason the vine is going to be fruitful is because God's people are going to be fruitful. So we want to see that. And then we want to see that God is after fruit. He will not rest without there being fruit. Six times in in the first eight verses, you have this verb, bearing fruit. Six times, bearing fruit. In fact, in verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So it's not just some fruit that God is after, but it's abundant fruit, a lot of fruit. So he's not after just a little bit of fruit in your life, a little bit of fruitfulness in your life. He's after more fruit, and he's always after more fruit in your life, always. As fruitful as you've been, which is wonderful, praise God for it, he wants you to be more fruitful. He wants to bear more fruit in your life. So what is his agenda in your life? His agenda is that you would grow. That's what fruitfulness is, right? You're producing fruit. You're growing. And this idea of fruit is, it's used all throughout the New Testament. You know, if if you've uh, read your New Testament start to finish, you've come across that notion of fruit bearing or fruits, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 times. It's a a common metaphor for what it looks like for a Christian to grow. They're producing fruit. And so the fruit of the Spirit is character, Christian character. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So a fruit, obviously one of the famous fruit passages. Now one thing about spiritual fruit when we're talking in these terms is that just like on a vine, you actually don't have to be 
particularly clever to tell whether the vine is fruitful, do you? Well, is there fruit on the vine? Well, if there is, then it's a fruitful vine. And obviously we mean good fruit, right? But you can usually tell almost by looking at it whether it's good or not, or not good fruit. But you can certainly tell if there's fruit or not. And that same concept is really important for us as Christians. If there's fruit in our lives, it will be evident. I mean, if you just think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, love, joy, peace, patience. I mean, do you think those things would be evident to other people if you had them? Yes, of course they would. And what you see in the, in the New Testament is that the, the outward side of our Christian life is, is really what fruit is. So it's, you know, when you're sharing the gospel, that's an outward thing. When you're serving people, which is in some ways uh, really at the center of uh, one of the fruits we want to see in this series, is that people would be motivated and inspired to serve in a new, sacrificial, uh, spirit-dependent way. So serving, evangelism, um, and then character, humility, worship. Worship is a fruit of the Spirit. You do not worship God unless God is at work in your life. Thankfulness, thankfulness, another fruit of the Spirit. You know, if you're outwardly thankful, if you're verbally thankful to the people in your life, people see that. They notice that. So fruits is an, is an outward thing. You know, it has to start internally, but it will always go outward. So growth begins with God. So God the Father, in this case, is the vine dresser. God the Son is the vine. And then we've already mentioned the Holy Spirit so, the, so if there's any fruit, there's, it's fruit of the Spirit, right? So it's, it's a Trinitarian act if there's fruitfulness in your life. And all that just tells us growth has to begin with God. If you're not a Christian, you have no spiritual fruit in your life. Zero, none. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say you can get almost there but not quite there. He didn't say you can do a lot, but you'll really be helped if you become a Christian. He speaks in very categorical terms. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value, nothing of spiritual consequence, nothing that will be pleasing to the Lord. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you have to get connected to Christ. That's the first step. If you're not connected to Christ as a Christian, you have to get connected to Christ. Believing in Christ, repenting of living your own life your own way, and turning to Christ, embracing him as your Lord and Savior, and then uniting to him, connecting to him. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Well, then you can begin to bear fruit as a Christian. So a question for reflection for you. I'm going I'm to give three of these in the sermon. One for each point. So the first question for reflection is this. Is your agenda for your life the same as God's agenda for your life? So God's agenda for your life is your spiritual growth. Is your agenda for your life the same as God's agenda for your life? Or in what ways is it off? You know, the, a common agenda you know, among people like us is you know, my comfort. You know what? My agenda for my life is my comfort. And everyone around me conforming to my preferences. That's my agenda. You know, and I actually want that to be everyone's agenda. Everyone I bump into, I want that to be all of their agenda. That I would just be happy and have all my needs met and, and have a very comfortable uh, life. But that is so very much not God's agenda for my life. And our happiness has a lot to do with how much 
we conform our agenda to God's agenda for our lives, right? If I resist his agenda and persist in my comfort being my agenda, I will be very unhappy. Because no one around me and nothing around me and there's no God in heaven will be after that agenda. Nothing will be serving that agenda except for me and I'll be powerless to accomplish it. So is your agenda for your life the same as God's agenda for your life? That's question one. We'll have a question for each main point. So point two now, growth requires work. Now you might think, hey, this is great. Growth begins with God. He's all powerful. Apart from him, I can do nothing. That means I don't have to do anything. And that's actually not true. Uh, For there to be growth, it it does require some work. It's not a passive thing. You know, it's not like a, a lamp. You know, if we're a lamp and we plug ourselves into the wall, we just flip the light switch, there's light all the time. Uh, it just works. In some ways, it requires some work. In other ways, it's, I'm just a passive thing. Electricity comes in, light goes out. It's great. But growth is not like that. Growth requires work. And that's because growth, the kind of growth we're talking about, is a, it's a living thing. It's organic. You know, mechanical things, you know, maybe there's no work in, in, in some ways required, at least in certain situations. But if it's a living thing, if that living thing is going to be fruitful and flourish, Someone's working hard to make it happen. So, you know, the uh, vines, and so grapevines is the, is the metaphor being used here. And so, so I was just thinking about the grapes that are used for wines. And so Napa Valley, California, is, is one, of the, one of the few uh, places on earth, actually, one of the few places on earth that produces wine grapes to that quality, to the quality that it does. There are other places, of course, but not many. Now, there's grapes that are produced in all, all kinds of places, but the particular grapes that are good for wine grapes, in Napa Valley is not a big place. And it's this particular blend of the soil and the humidity and the water in the ground, the temperatures, and the way that the temperatures fluctuate during the day, the nighttime temperature versus daytime temperatures, the amount of sunlight it gets. All those things converge, but there's also a ton of work that's going in to caring for those grapevines irrigation, diseases, and insects. I was reading about an insect that, that, as good Americans, you know, we like to share ourselves with the world. So uh, there was some vines from Napa Valley that we, we, we blessed France with in the 1800s. And it almost wiped out the entire French uh, wine industry because it had insects from Napa Valley. And our, our, vi- our vines had, had uh, uh, created a tolerance for those insects, but not in France. And so it almost wiped out the entire European wine industry. But also, like good Americans, hey, you got a problem, we'll fix it. So we took our, 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 our vines that were, that were uh, uh, insulated against these insects, and we brought them to France and said, hey, you guys need some of our vines. And so anyway, uh, American capitalism at work there. But all that took an enormous amount of work by skilled vine dressers. Someone's working very hard there. And so what's the work required in our spiritual growth? Well, there's a God side of the work, and then there's an us side of the work. The God side of the work is pruning. God prunes us to make us more fruitful. John 15, 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You know, one way to look at that is, no matter who you are as a branch, the shears are coming. The only question is whether you're cut off entirely or you're pruned, pruned to become more fruitful. And I'll, I'll just say quick, if this is a, if this is a, 
question for you in this passage, but I think the best reading of this passage is it has nothing at all to do with losing your salvation. Nothing. Zero. So I can direct you to a couple commentaries that make the case very emphatically and strongly if, you, if you're interested in that, but it really has nothing to do with losing your salvation. So please just throw that out of your mind for the rest of the sermon. Uh, this has to do, it's just the analogy, right? It's a fruit vine. So you cut off certain branches and you prune branches. That's, that's what you do in, a, in, a, in, a, in the vine uh, situation. So we're talking about now the Father pruning us. <clears throat> and when you prune, you cut things away. Either diseased or dead parts of a branch, you cut them away. But you do it for a very specific purpose, and that's maximum fruitfulness. And the thing with fruitfulness and, and pruning is, you, is sometimes you cut off disease and dead things, and some off, sometimes you cut off things that are very much alive, maybe even thriving, actually, in their own way, but you cut them off because you know if you don't cut them off or don't trim it back, that, vine's not, or that branch is not going to achieve maximum fruitfulness. And that's what God's after in our lives, maximum fruitfulness. So he cuts away the bad things, but he also cuts away good things, all for his own specific purposes. And the good side of our father is he never... You know, I don't know if you've ever uh, tried to prune you know, rose bushes or something, but it's easy to cut too much. It's easy to, I've done this to certain bushes in, in, in my household over the years. I'm trying to do it less because we share a household with uh, Phil and Cassie. I'm trying not to bless them with my pruning disasters, but I, I've had situations where I prune too much, and I think recently you probably were wondering whether I prune too much. Our trees in the back. However, I lack omniscience, and I lack the kind of personal, specific knowledge that God has of us, and therefore, so sometimes when I prune, I prune too much. I take off things that are actually, it's, it's gone past the point of increasing fruitfulness and it's gone to the point of hurting the plant. God never does that. He never prunes too much. I mean, it can really feel like that, can it? If he's cutting things away in your life that you love, well, at some point it feels like, Lord, you're cutting bone now. This is painful but it's not too much. It's not too much. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's no amateur vine dresser. He is the living God. And he has all kinds of ways of pruning us. You know, circumstances are a common way that he prunes us. Sometimes the circumstance that prunes us is you, got it, you get a promotion and you have a whole set of new responsibilities that really force you to grow as a, as a worker. Uh, you, you have way more, you have, you have two jobs now to do and the same amount of hours per week. And to figure out how to do that is a pruning endeavor, isn't it? And then sometimes the pruning is you lose your job altogether. It's a circumstance that came your way, which is very painful. So those circumstances are both pruning circumstances. Sometimes the pruning is you get married and have a lot of children. And you realize, you know, this, this big swath of discretionary time that used to be me time is now like, you know, it's like a postage stamp. If you know what a postage stamp is, it's back in the 1800s and 1900s. We had these small things that were called stamps. We used to put them on these things called letters. Uh, anyway, it's, it's something small. So discretionary time can feel that way. You know, you're, I'm used to, you know, six hours a day of discretionary time, you know, back in college or whatever. And now it's like 27 minutes. And that forces you to grow, Right? Forces you to grow. It's a good thing. God is want, he wants you to become more fruitful. He doesn't actually want you to be self-indulgent and lazy. He wants you to be responsible and hardworking 
and diligent. And that can only happen by pruning. You know, aging, aging, the, the kind of aging we're all doing all the time. You know, you just can't do what you used to be able to do. And there's a, there's a pruning that happens with that. You know, your hobbies kind of naturally take care of themselves. You know, I no longer struggle with running marathons too often. You know, it's just not an option for me anymore. Uh, but there's a pruning involved in that. There's a humili- humility involved in that. You know, sometimes the pruning is a consequence. You know, you, you make a bad decision or you commit a sin that just has long-term consequences. There's a pruning that takes place with that. Allergies. You know, you don't think of an allergy as a, as a pruning situation, but that might be a case of, you know, God is taking something that's good, you know, a food that you love, which is not a bad food at all. It's a, it's a wonderful food, God-given. It's a beautiful food. And yet you develop an allergy to something. You know, it's, it's a case of God pruning. And it feels painful at the time. And, and, then some, and if the allergies are severe, it can feel like God is, God is hurting you. He no longer loves you or, or some, something along those lines. But, it, but that's just not true. It's, it's the vine dresser doing his work. He's pruning because he loves you. Maximum fruitfulness is what he's after. Not a little bit more, but maximum fruitfulness is what he's after in your life. So that's God's work, the pruning work. What about our work? I think the, the, the catch-all category for our work in this passage is this word abiding. So John 15, 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And abide in uh, the ESV and the New American Standard is the word used, obviously, uh, from the Greek word meno. <clears throat> uh, other translations use the word remain. You know, it, it, remain in me and, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. But it has to do with this connection, the vine and the branch being connected. And if you think of a, a vine and a branch, there would be no way to kind of draw a line, and, and we're, not, we're not talking about grafting at this point, but just a naturally growing vine and, and its branches. There would be no way to draw a line between the vine and the, and the branch. They're, they're, because they're, they're the same thing. They're connected. There's a unity. You know, the branch is in the vine, the vine is in the branch. You can't, sep- you can't separate them, at least by looking at them. And so that kind of connection is what Jesus is telling us to do. Abide, abide, remain in me. <clears throat> now, the, 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 the simple beginning of our abiding in Christ is faith. So First uh, John 4.15 says this, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So what do I have to do to abide in Christ and have Christ abide in me? Well, I have to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That's faith, saving faith. It's not just verbally saying something. That's not what John is after in this case. But the confession, the sincere confession, you know, it's, it's the heart commitment, the life, whole life commitment to Jesus being truly the Son of God. Well, that's, the, that's saving faith. Having saving faith is how you begin that process of abiding in Christ. And so, again, if you haven't done that, that's where you start. That's the first step here of, of spiritual fruitfulness. But abiding means, means more than that. He, he's not just saying make sure that you, you, know, you check the box of did I or did I not believe in Christ for salvation. It's the, it's the active, ongoing side of faith. You know, faith is not a once, once and for all thing, is it? You believed and came to Christ, but every day you work hard to believe in Christ, don't you? 
It's a, it's a leaning. It's, a, it's an ongoing dependence on Christ. Things are coming at you that tempt you to not do that. God calls you to maintain your faith. And that's not a, that's not a matter of maintaining your saving faith as if you're, you're going to precariously you know, lose it and then be lost forever. That's not the issue. But it's an ongoing confidence in who God is and his promises that he is with you. He will be with you in every situation. He will care for you. He will provide what's needed in the moment. That's the ongoing life of faith and abiding. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, uh, says this well. So no branch has life in itself. It is utterly dependent for life and fruitfulness on the vine to which it is attached. The living branch is thus truly in the vine, and the life of the vine is truly in the branch. The point is clear. Continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life. This is the sine qua non of spiritual fruitfulness. Continuous dependence, constant reliance, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life, taking it in. That's what, that's what we're getting at. That's what we're getting at here, this abiding in Christ. It's that kind of ongoing, active dependence on Christ. And he will, he'll introduce a couple other ideas in this passage, which I think you can place under that concept of abiding. You know, if you're an abiding Christian, what are two things that will be true of you? Well, two things true of you will be that his words will be abiding in you. 15.7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So his words abiding in you, the Bible, you know, the, the, the words on these pages abiding in you, being in your head through study and meditation and, and just reading the Bible. That's what it is to have his words abiding in you. And there, um, you know, there's the tools we have as, as, as American Christians are, are just, they're not infinite, but boy, they almost, they almost feel infinite in terms of the Bible, uh, the access to the Bible that we have. But one thing you just can't get away from, no matter what's advertised or what is said, is it, it simply takes time to have his words abide in you. It just takes time. There's, there's no slick process where you can get it down to zero minutes. I spend zero minutes a day in the Bible, and it has transformed my life. <laughs> there just isn't a tool like that. It simply takes time. So if, if the word is going to have its intended effect in your life, that's because you're spending some amount of time every day, or many days at least, uh, in the word. And again, it, you can't get it down to zero minutes. It's just going to take time. And we do it because of, because of what it is, what it uniquely is. It's breathed out by God. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. It's breathed out by God. It's so much the word of God. It's, a, it's as if you just watched God in front of you just write the words with, his, with a pen. These are his words. Yes, God used human authors in a variety of circumstances and language and cultures to produce it, but the final results are his words. And so we look at this and we know that the Apostle John is behind it, and yet we also know that, yeah, but behind the Apostle John's words are God's words. These are his words. And there's nothing else that has that, that mark on it, that stamp on it. These are his words uniquely. 
Lots of other things are wonderful to read, edifying for our spiritual lives, helpful to understand the Bible, but nothing else is breathed out by God in the same direct, literal manner as the Word of God. And so we know know that it's unique in that sense. It's unique because what it teaches is absolutely 100% true. We know that the promises made and the warnings made in the Bible are real. And they either have happened or they have been fulfilled or they will be fulfilled. fulfilled. But they will all happen. Make no mistake. The promises are real. The, the warnings are real. The Bible's unique in that it presents to us what God wants from us. What will please the Lord for you to do or not do? The Bible presents that, teaches that clearly. I mean, yes, in the Old Testament, sometimes you have to work, but at the end of the day, the Old Testament moral commands and the New Testament commands are, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what will please the Lord for you to do. And then there's this other side of the Bible you don't want to forget, and that is that there's, there's just a power to transform you that is in the Bible. So in John 17, just a little bit later in the Upper Room Discourse, he says this as he's praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them more holy. That's what sanctify means. Set them apart in their minds and their hearts and their ambitions and their lives. Well, he, then he tells us that your word is truth. How can we be more sanctified? We can give ourselves more to the word of God. So an abiding Christian is going to have his words abiding in them. And then the second thing is obedience. John 15, 10 If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. God has spoken his commandments to us, and they are authoritatively given. Uh, He he has the authority to do that. He has spoken, and we are obligated. We are held accountable to fulfill those commandments, to obey those commandments. Uh, There's just no getting around his place of authority in our lives. And, uh, and you know, we like to think that we can, we can live this kind of don't tread on me. No authority is ever going to speak into my life. I'm, I'm a free person. You know, but it, uh, that's, there, is just, there, there is no part of any universe where you can go where you are that free. And the irony is living that way, that don't tread on me way, doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to slavery and bondage and unhappiness and wreckage. And if you watch uh, uh, you know, parents who um, apparently don't discipline their children at all, and then you watch the children, you don't look at them and say, wow, those children are free. You look at them and you say, they're out of control. They're not a blessing to the people around them. They're not a blessing to themselves. They're out of control. They're not free. So at some point, freedom and life and happiness and joy, you have to see is embracing the authorities that God has placed in my life. And he, number one, over all those authorities, is that authority over me. And so he speaks commandments, and I am bound and obligated to speak those or to live according to those. But they're the words of a loving father who knows what is best. He knows how this vine or how the branches on this vine are going to flourish. And so he speaks commands accordingly. He doesn't hate us, he loves us, and his commandments are an expression of his love for us. So, I mean, I'm saying this, saying this as if I remember this all the time, but obviously, me, like you, we are sinners, so we fight against this. There's an internal war going on with who's in charge, either me or him, and ultimately, he's in charge, and he's, he's not impressed with my tantrums uh, in return, 
And, Lord, and by the grace of God, just as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we do fail, when we do disobey his commandments, he's already made provision. Christ died almost 2,000 years ago. The provision was made for us already. We came to church, the provision was already there. And so we receive it. We are blessed by it in the Lord's Supper. But we do embrace our call to obey. So God's work is the pruning work. He prunes uh, the, the branches that he loves for their maximum fruitfulness. And then our work is the abiding work that includes his words abiding in us and then obedience. <clears throat> so the question for reflection here is this. Are you resisting God's pruning shears? And, and obviously the answer is yes. Well, duh. Yes. But specifically how? Are you resisting God's pruning shears? That's, that's where this question becomes more relevant and helpful. You know, specifically, how are you resisting God's pruning shears? What is it he's, he's cutting away in your life and you're just not letting him accomplish the purpose uh, that it's meant to accomplish? Are you resisting God's pruning shears? All right, point three. Growth brings great blessings. Now, Jesus holds up as he as he lays down some pretty significant obligation and makes some pretty um, sobering statements, like God is pruning us, and apart from him we can do nothing, he also holds up to us these great promises of what blessings come our way if we do embrace spiritual growth and experience this kind of spiritual growth he's talking about. And we'll just simplify all that he says in these two categories. It's joy for us and it's glory for God. It's joy for us, and it's glory for God. What are, the, what are the great blessings that come our way with spiritual growth? Well, it's joy for us. And what happens toward, uh, for the Lord? Well, he is glorified. So we'll pick it up with joy first. Joy for us. Verse 11. So these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So at this point, Jesus has obviously left the vine, uh, vine dresser metaphor. Now he's stepping into more relational, emotional, experiential kinds of things. And he taps into this joy notion here. And how amazing it is, isn't it? That the God of the universe who has all authority, he's perfectly holy and righteous, would care about your joy, would care about my joy. And so, in some ways, that he would condescend to that level where he would not just be, concern, be concerned about my eternal state, but be concerned about the joy that I experience in this life right now. That's our God. And what we're invited to experience here is Jesus' own joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. My joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full, you know, overflowing to the brim. Not just a, a little foretaste, a little taste of joy, but fullness of joy. It's quite a statement. Leon Morris, uh, as he's reflecting on <clears throat> this notion of, of Jesus' joy, what kind of joy Jesus had, and then this notion that we share, and he says this. That, uh, he starts off quoting another guy, Strachan, but uh, this is from Leon Morris's commentary. The joy of Jesus is the joy that arises from the sense of a finished work. It is creative joy, like the joy of the artist, it produces a sense of unexhausted power for fresh creation. This joy in the heart of Jesus is both the joy of victory 
and the sense of having brought his church into being. And then Morris, it is an inspiring thought that Jesus calls his followers into joy. The Christian life is not some shallow, insipid, or flavorless. The Christian life is not some shallow, insipid following of a traditional pattern. It is a life characterized by unexhausted and inexhaustible power for fresh creation. It's this life-giving, overflowing joy. And in this joy is an an experience of God's love as well. So in 15.9, as the Father has loved me, so, I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You know, live in, take up residence in, dwell in my love. As the Father has loved me, I've loved you. There's no, there's no greater love than that, the Father's love for the Son. And yet the Son is telling us, I have that love for you. Abide in my love. Live in the good of my love for you. Paul in Ephesians 3 has, uh, in one of his great prayers, he just wants us to, to experience it. And so he prays uh, in Ephesians 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May you, I mean, his prayer for us as as the saints, his prayer for the church, is that we would somehow get some sense of just how vast, how inexpressibly vast God's love is for us, and that that would fill us to the fullness of God. You know, at that point, he's running out of, human vocabulary to capture this very spiritual, wonderful notion of just being filled with the fullness of God. God wants that for us. Isn't that amazing? God wants that for us. Joy and that kind of experience of his love and fullness. Praise God for that. And when you have this uh, massive humanity like us, that deserves nothing but the fires of hell, and you uh, bring them from death to life, and you radically transform them, and suddenly they become spiritually fruitful. They begin to serve and share the gospel and demonstrate godliness. God is glorified. You know, it's joy for us, it's glory for God. He is glorified. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. You know, taking um, the massive humanity that we were before Christ and transforming us into a worshiping, serving people of God, that glorifies God. There's no explanation outside of the infinite power and glory of God. He is glorious. He is powerful to do that. Spurgeon talk, has, uh, in, in one of his sermons, he was, he was comparing the work of creation with, with the work of rebirth, spiritual rebirth. And he said, creation's nothing compared to saving a soul. You know, making everything in six days, nothing. There was nothing opposing God at that time. No devil was opposing him. No sin was opposing him. This wasn't a fallen creation he had to redeem. There was nothing there. He could start from scratch. 
There was nothing opposing him. But when it comes to a Christian being reborn, the people of God being reborn and transformed into a new humanity, well, that's even greater. That's a greater work. Because at that point, he's taken on the devil himself, and he's saying, yeah, step aside for just a bit. I've got some work to do here. The sin in our hearts crushes it. The world itself, which is hostile to him, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, all those things were opposing him, and yet no problem for him. Seas parted, brought us from death to life, transformed his people. That brings glory to God. That brings glory to God. So the question for us uh, for reflection in point three is this. Do you really believe that God wants you to experience joy and love? Do you really believe that God wants you to experience his joy and his love? Do you really believe that God wants you to experience his joy and his love? Because he does. He just does. Do you believe that? And if, 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 if not, why not? You know, what, is, what, what, is the, what is the hindrance you're feeling as much as you can identify it? Do you really believe that God wants you to experience his joy and his love? So growth begins with God. Growth requires work. You know, God is the, as the one who prunes, and then us, those who abide in him. God bring, uh, growth brings great blessings. Joy for us. Glory to God. And we had three questions for reflection if you missed them. First question was, is your agenda for your life the same as God's agenda for your life? Second question was, are you resisting God's pruning shears? And then the third one, do you really believe that God wants you to experience his joy and his love? At the conference, uh, I was at the uh, conference that Philip mentioned, the same conference. I guess John mentioned it too. Um, and it was, a, uh, it was quite a presentation of a, whole, of a whole variety of musicians and speakers and, and expressions of worship. But one of, the, uh, one of the real highlights was Johnny Erickson Tata uh, being part of the event. And so if you, well, just, just to recap her story in brief. Uh, so she's a 17-year-old, athletic, uh, attractive young woman. And she goes swimming in Chesapeake Bay, and she dives in the water. It's way more shallow than she expects. Um, her neck is broken, and so she's paralyzed from the neck down for the, for the rest of her life. And so she's, she's now been in, a, in that wheelchair for 55 years. So she's 72 years old. happens when she was 17. So if, if you think of pruning, you know, God's pruning, the things he took away in that moment are just profound. And so her story is really this, this rebuilding of a life. You know, so hour by hour, day by day, she gets to the point where she no longer wants to commit suicide. And then hour by hour, day by day, she gets to the point where she begins to want to glorify God with her life. And the reason we know about her as Christians, if you, if you do, if you don't, you should look her up. If you, the reason we know about her as, as, as Christians is because she has spent her whole life serving and singing and blessing others, and glorifying God, and testifying that God is good. He is good. I mean, she's, she's, she's not oblivious to her own story at all. In fact, one of the sobering things about her story is, uh, as she shared at the conference, is that you know, dealing with quadriplegia for a lifetime is a profound challenge, obviously. 
But she said, actually, what's really been hard is in the last couple years, she's experienced more pain than she had before. And so getting through each day with the pain that she's experienced has actually been kind of a, a fresh, it's just been a fresh challenge for her. And so her, her sharing was on uh, the, the hymns of the faith and how the hymns of the faith can build faith and feed faith. So in the middle of the night, when, when you are desperate, singing those hymns to the Lord uh, is a way to build faith in your heart. And it was especially powerful that she had that, that recent battle with pain. Uh, so yes, her life is a wonderful testimony of that, but it was especially um, powerful in light of that. But her testimony ultimately is, is what Jesus says. That the Father loves us. And he's good, and he's after good things, and he will be glorified. And so in her, in her case, you know, probably the, for me, the most powerful um, moment with her testimony was, was after, uh, after she presented, we, we sang, you know, there's thousands of people singing, and she's on stage um, singing along with us. And so we sang, my gracious redeemer, my savior art thou, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. That glorifies God. I mean, to be able to look into heaven and her just clearly, open-heartedly, without any shame or reservation saying, I love you, Jesus. That was just very powerful. And so, yes, we're going to finish with that song right now. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the witness of, of Johnny Erickson Tata. And we pray, Father, that in our own ways, we would just be able to emulate her example. Whatever hardships you bring, we know that they, they pale in comparison to hers, at least for some of us. We know that others, other, others of us have, have had very profound, continual hardships. Whatever our hardships are, though, Lord, we do pray that we would be able to trust that you, as the omnicompetent vine dresser are pruning us in beautiful, perfect ways to make us maximally fruitful. Lord, let us have faith, just a, just a an unwavering confidence that that is true so that we might abide in you, that we might abide in the vine and see fruits in our lives, that we would have that, that saving faith where we have in that initial way turned from our own sin and believed in Jesus and that we pray that we would take on that abiding in Christ, that continual dependence, that ongoing reliance on him as our source and our only source for fruitfulness and hope and strength and courage and character. So Lord, would you pour out on us your spirit, that spirit who loves to produce the fruit of the spirits. Would you produce more evangelism in us, more service in us, more care for other people in us, more ability to put sin to death and be self-controlled and deny ourselves and our own lusts and cravings and desires. Just do more, Lord. We pray that we would bear much fruit. However much fruit we've seen in the past, Lord, we pray that you would help us to bear much fruit 
so that we would become more fruitful. Help us to be more fruitful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.